Welcome to the People and Performance Podcast, offering tips and expert insights into the strategic capabilities, behaviors, and results needed to grow and sustain employee performance. What does it mean to be truly inclusive in your efforts to engage employees? How can leaders in HR demonstrate an equitable company culture to employees and candidates? In this People and Performance episode, we hear from Michael Back, Chair of the Board of Directors at the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion about what's changed in organisations to improve DEI efforts and what's still needed. Michael is an internationally recognised thought leader in the fields of diversity, inclusion and employment equity. Listen to this conversation and discover powerful ways to help employers and HR practitioners encourage diversity, equity and inclusion within the workplace. The most important changes to how we work and the ways we work together over the past year. Innovative ways to engage with employees and communities. And how to start conversations and genuinely support BIPOC employees in meaningful ways. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Bill. To start with, let's talk a little bit about well, let's talk about your book, actually, because there are a lot of great learnings within the book. So uh, I think that's that's probably a nice um, starting point for our listeners. Birds of all feathers. And in it, you talk a lot about DEI practitioners and, and the value that they can bring to an organization. And in your opinion, you think that organizations of a thousand plus employees should have a dedicated DEI person there. Um, before we get into the why, Michael, let, let's just start with uh, what their role looks like. What, what are some of their core duties and responsibilities? Yeah, so a, a DEI practitioner is a doer. Um, and it, I should preface that by saying it really depends on the level of the DEI practitioner. So if they're a senior DNI practitioner, then they're more strategic and uh, if they are uh, more junior, then they tend to be more transactional, more operational. Um, but that's really what they're there, they're there to do. They're there to think about the operations of an organization through a DEI lens to ensure that at every sort of touch point, every point in the organization, that is a consideration, whether that's facilities or IT, communications and marketing, uh, obviously HR, there's lots of different points where there should be a DEI lens applied. And that's really the job of uh, the DEI, the dedicated DEI person. Wonderfully succinct. Thank you very much. This is why we had you on the show, because uh, you know your <laughs> stuff and uh, you, you, you do it, in a, you deliver it in an effective way, Michael. As part of uh, Chris and I's homework ahead of this uh, interview, I, I was I was having another look at your, your LinkedIn profile and some of the, the recent posts that you shared. And a couple of them uh, really jumped out at me. And I, I want to start with uh, one in, in which you, you shared uh, the following. M- my view of diversity and inclusion comes from a business perspective of making sure we have access to the best talent and that we are addressing the problems we see in our organization. Um, so my question for you is, what, what's the business case for DEI offices, Michael? Perhaps you can, as part of the answer, include mention of, of uh, three areas that, that you like to often focus on, which are people, customers, and the brand. Sure. So when oftentimes when we go into organizations if we don't see a dedicated dni practitioner 
we see a volunteer committee. And that's great. It's a great place to start, particularly if you're a smaller organization. That's a, a great way to get things done. But we don't put our safety plan in the hands of a volunteer committee. We don't put our finance function in the hands of a volunteer committee. Uh, our legal department, um, we have dedicated people who have specific expertise and do a job. So in organizations that say, oh, DEI is a real, it's a huge priority for us. Well, where are the resources? That's really the business case. Somebody needs to do the work and it is work and it's a lot of work. And you mentioned the three areas that I tend to focus on as the key drivers for DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I should explain that. And that's people, customers, and brand. And I always say that if, if what you're doing doesn't affect one of those things, then you shouldn't be doing it. There's a couple other pillars, and that's suppliers and compliance. But I don't love compliance because, of course, if the government tells you to do something, it's not like you have a choice in the matter. And suppliers, it's a very advanced conversation. But if you look at the three people, it's about who you hire, who you fire, who you retain, who you promote. Your customers is about who you service, who you do business with. And everyone has a customer in some way, shape, or form. A municipality, their customer is the residence of that municipality. A hospital, it's the patients. A university or college, it's the students. Everyone has a customer. Even if you're business to business, you have a customer. So it's who is your customer? Who is coming into your organization and doing business with you? And the third is your brand. And I'm not talking about your brand as in, you know, your logo and your PowerPoint slides. I'm talking about how your organization is known in the market. And is it known as a diverse and inclusive place? If I am a customer and I'm South Asian, when I go into a bank in my community, Am I going to see people who look like me across the counter? Are they going to understand my needs? Um, there are a litany of things that go into that. And we as consumers, we as individuals, we look to uh, these situations to feel like we're not alone, to feel like we're going to be understood, that um, we're not going to feel discriminated against, uh, let alone just feel like we belong in that space. Um, and so when you look at a DEI officer, their job is to look at those three pillars and ask a lot of really serious questions. Is our population, are our people diverse? Is our workplace inclusive? Do we see higher rates of turnover amongst certain groups? Um, do we see that we're not getting applications from certain groups? Then look at the customer. Who is our customer? Do we understand their needs? And then look at the brand about how we're known in the market. And the, the business case for a DEI officer is that's their sole job, is to look at what you do as an organization, and I mean every aspect of what you do, and apply that DEI lens. Okay, so just a quick follow-up there then, Michael, on what you said. Um, so mm -hmm. in smaller organizations, there won't be a dedicated DEI practitioner, of course. So so that falls under the uh, the stewardship of what, the HR department principally? Principally, yes. It tends to end up in HR. Um, and I would say that more often than not, what I see then is a, is a committee. 
And that's not necessarily just made up of HR, but made up of different areas of the organization. Um, and then sometimes you'll get somebody who's, you know, has diversity as part of their job description, um, which is not a bad thing. Again, you need someone to do the work and inevitably volunteer committees, their jobs end up taking over. Um, so it's very difficult to, um, uh, to get things done as a volunteer community uh, committee. I feel like there could be a whole different interview <laughs> just on that on that issue of getting things done with, with a team of volunteers. But uh, that's not what we're focusing on today. <laughs> um, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, work from home and uh, and uh, how work from home became a thing for most people uh, during mm -hmm. during COVID. Um, that had a lot of impact, of course, on on um, how we view DEI initiatives and and um, how we view the the needs and concerns of of, uh, of of employees. Can can you talk to a little bit about that? About how COVID and it, it's it's how how it caused work from home, and then how work from home and and the uh, the needs of employees changed in the context of DEI. Yeah, in some cases, COVID was a blessing from a DEI perspective. Women and people with disabilities in particular have been asking for decades to be able to work from home. And employers notoriously said, oh, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Well, apparently we can. And in some ways, it really leveled the playing field. But at the same time, in some ways, also created barriers. Um, because we are not in the same physical space as our coworkers. Uh, we've seen drops in engagement. We've seen that there is a disparity in um, people who want to return to the workplace versus those that are quite happy to work from home. And I think this is a, a really important um, moment in time for employers to really apply a DEI lens to um, their return to work plans in that they need to consider the impact of, uh, I'm going to use a dramatic example. Let's say uh, that your workforce is 50-50 um, biological men and women. I'm just talking binary for a moment. And that of your women, only 10% of them want to return to the office. Well, now you've got 50% men in the office and 10% women in the office with another 40% working from home. That's going to change some dynamics. And it's going to mean that women are left out of those casual conversations where decisions get made. Because so-and-so, you know, Bob walks down the hall to John's office and all of a sudden uh, there's a new project going on that a whole group of people had no input into. So, there are considerations that need to be taken uh, around um, work from home and return to work um, through a DEI lens, people with disabilities, women, people of color, people with different language skills. Um, it, it has been an interesting, um, interesting dichotomy, I think, throughout the pandemic as um, you know, we've seen explosions of racism, anti-Semitism, 
but it's in a different way because people are not face to face. So it, it, you know, I think this is the opportunity really to uh, shift things. Quick follow up on that. Can we can we really uh, get to know our colleagues and appreciate uh, the, the differences between us all if if we never get to spend any time together, Michael? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. We just have to be more deliberate about it. You know, I, in a previous life, I had a team one one person in the UK and one person in Sydney, Australia, and I was in well, frankly, I was in the hull of an airplane most of the time, but technically my home base was Toronto. And I had to be deliberate about getting to know my team. And that meant that we didn't start a call by jumping right into business. Um, It meant that twice a year we got together in person and we spent a lot of time socializing to build those relationships up so that when we were in opposite parts of the world, we could get on a call and we could get into business and we respected one another. We knew each other. Um, it's deliberate action, and it's harder for people to do um, because you're not reading body language necessarily. You know, p- sometimes people turn on their cameras, sometimes they don't. You've got backgrounds. You've got all sorts of cats jumping across desks. It's more difficult. Actually, I'm going to rephrase that. It's different. It's not that it's more difficult. It's just different. If you had uh, answered that question without uh, any mention of getting together, I'm, I may have, I may have been a bit dubious. But I, I take your point. You know, if, if you can find opportunities at least a couple of times a year to to uh, to get together and uh, and be and be present and and um, really make make a concerted effort to to get to know your colleagues, then uh, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that could actually work. Um, Even if you okay. can't you can still get to know one another. It's like I I worked for a very large multinational and I had relationships with people that I never met in person. And we just, you know, you have to be a bit personable and ask personal questions and get to know one another. It's just through deliberate action. I don't know why I'm being so cynical here, Michael. I mean, part of my job is uh, relationship <laughs> building without without ever meeting a lot of these people. I, you and I haven't met in person yet, I don't think, mm-hmm. right? And 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 yet we've we done this is the second interview. Yeah, right. We've done two interviews together, including this one. Uh, you've spoken at an event I've organised. Um, we do need to correct that, however, and and grab a coffee together at some point. Now then, um, I found a very juicy quote from you on in another LinkedIn post <laughs> that, that you shared recently. Um, I love this one. So I was like, right, I've got to find a way to get this into the interview. Well, here it is. Just because you watch RuPaul's Drag Race does not make you an expert in the LGBTQ plus communities. So my question for you is, why do you believe it's important to be being open to learn in safe spaces, that's a very important term here, uh, with a mindset that includes not being afraid to get the language incorrect? So I, I think it's important to learn because we feel like we know more than we do. And RuPaul's Drag Race is a perfect example if you've never watched, and I'm a huge fan, incidentally. Um, it, it is a an eye into the world of the LGBTQ plus communities, um, into trans people, into gender, into all sorts of things. And so there are people out there who watch it and feel like 
they're gaining knowledge about the LGBTQ2 plus communities broadly. But in fact, they're getting to know a very narrow subset of the communities. And it's also reality television, which is not real at all. So um, I think it is important for people to be open to learning. And you're right, safe space is critically important that I, you know, when I walk into a learning opportunity, I'll be the first to say that, listen, I don't know everything. I, I'm a member of the LGBTQ2 plus communities, and I am not an expert in all LGBTQ2 plus experiences because I'm not trans, because I'm not two-spirit, because I'm not bisexual or a lesbian. Um, so it's really important to, um, be open to that learning, but it's also really important to not get tied up in language and, um, you know, I'll give you an example, uh, personal pronouns. Um, you know, we're going through uh, a, a real exploration around gender and identity and and there are people who identify as he, him, as I do. There are people that identify as she, her. There are people that identify as they, them. There are people that identify by other personal pronouns. And I have seen experiences where people stumble with pronouns. And I've stumbled with pronouns. And the trick of that is not to get hung up about it. It is not to be ignorant about it. It's, you know, if you make a mistake, you apologize and correct yourself. And then work really hard not to make that mistake again. Again, this is deliberate action. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, but it's important. And I also think that the person on the receiving end, it's, it's not helpful to be aggressive and angry and think that everyone should instantaneously understand what your personal pronouns are and not mix them up. This is new for everyone. Um, and there are other examples of it, but if, if someone is deliberately misgendering you, that's a problem. But if someone misgenders you, and then apologizes, says, I'm so sorry, and then corrects themselves, cut them a little slack. That's the, safe space goes both ways. And unfortunately, if we aren't, if we, and I mean we being members of marginalized or, or uh, um, equity deserving groups, if we are being overly sensitive and we aren't creating safe space for others to frankly make mistakes, then we're as much in the wrong as anyone else. Well, that sounds very reasonable when you describe it in, in, in that manner. Well, another thing that you say um, could, could be construed, however, as a bit more controversial, Michael. So in, in a recent interview on bcbusiness.ca, you answered the following to one of their questions. You said this, for employers, the so-called social justice approach to, to diversity and inclusion has never worked and never will. 
the basic idea a straight white able-bodied man must lose so a member of the underrepresented underrepresented group can win why doesn't that model work you're you're, you're taking a taking quite a forthright approach there maybe you can tell yeah. me why you believe it's right and it's important to address and maybe challenge ideas around affirmative action and why do you believe that inclusion models work better than social justice models why i don't think the social justice model works the social justice model is is built on the philosophy that of of affirmative action it's built on the the philosophy of a straight white able-bodied man had to lose has to lose in order for someone else to gain and i don't believe that'll work because it requires the straight white able-bodied man willingly to give up power and why would they what's in it for them we as a as a you know the human race for the most part most of us look at life through the lens of what's in it for me through self-interest there are lots of people who are, are quite selfless but most people look at it through a self-interested lens so if i'm told you know if we go into a conversation we look at our executive team and we say oh you know we need more women and people of color in our executive team so we're going to get rid of half of the straight white able-bodied men why am i going to buy into that why am i going to allow that first of all it's quite dismissive of the people that are in those roles suggests that they don't actually have the skills to do the job. It also suggests that women and people of color by their very nature have the skills to do the job, which I'm not saying there aren't people out there. There absolutely are. But that's the problem. The social justice model puts the person's identity first. And that's not how life works. I believe very strongly that we need to look at this through a lens of creativity and innovation. This is about solving problems. And diversity can be the means to solve the problem. It's not the end goal. It's the means to get there. So as an example, lots of employers uh, in Canada and the United States and around the world right now are facing massive labor shortages um, because of the pandemic where a significant population, the a significant portion of the population decided to retire early and a significant portion of the population um, particularly those in low low skilled jobs upskilled so where they were a waiter or a bartender before they're now a cybersecurity expert the solution is diversity the solution is making sure that you are open to the widest possible pool of talent and that they're going to stay, and that's the inclusion part. So diversity is, in that case, uh, a means to an end, to address that problem. Whereas the social justice approach is simply about representation. And it, you know, arguably, what the, the civil rights movement started in the 1950s and 1960s, it's been 60 plus years. It hasn't worked. And I don't think it's going to work. We're, we're run out of time for today, Michael. So before we do wrap up, how can how can our listeners connect with you, whether that's through LinkedIn, email, whatever you'd like to share there? And also, how can they learn more about CCDI? 
Absolutely. So for me, you can go to my website, michaelbach.com, or you can connect with me on social media. I am at the Michael Bach. And for CCDI, it's ccdi.ca or CCDI social on social media platforms. Wonderful. Well, that just leads me to say for today, Michael, thanks very much for joining me on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to this episode of the People in Performance podcast. Follow us on social media and remember to subscribe.